HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by the International Culinary Center, offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management, from culinary technology to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit internationalculinarycenter.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Trick or treat, indeed. Today is Halloween, and a taste of the past is going to delve into the candy, the ghosts, and the scary masks, and kind of all about Halloween and where it all started. I mean, who doesn't love Halloween? Where do you get to dress up? Everyone loves to dress up. It's The kids like to dress up and run around, but then it kind of gives the adults an excuse to dress up and act like kids, too. And we get candy. We get to be silly. And, but where did it all start? Where did it all come from? You know, I was looking around to do some research, and here in New York City, um, there is a wonderful tradition, and it's the Greenwich Village Halloween Parade. And I was looking up to see some of the history about it, and this is this year will be the 40th year of the Greenwich Village Halloween um, Parade. It is really a spectacle to behold. And unfortunately, last year, because of Hurricane Sandy, um, as my guest just said, Halloween was canceled. But the Halloween Parade was canceled, and I think today it's going to be festivities enlarged. Everyone is going to party and celebrate Halloween with... You don't want to say with a vengeance because then it might bring a Jason wielding an axe or something. But but it is going to be, I'm sure, quite a wonderful celebration to um, to celebrate the holiday. And today I have with me somebody who can talk all about it because she's been doing some research about it. She is Sarah Lohman. And Sarah is a historic gastronomist. She recreates historic recipes as a way to make a personal connection with the past, as well as inspire her contemporary cooking. And you can follow her on her blog at Four Pounds Flour. Welcome, Sarah. Hello. I'm now, so Sarah, happy to be here. You have joined me before and on the show, and, and you're always so interesting because you really talk about delve into something. I mean, you, you jump headfirst and hands into the flour, the Definitely. food, and, and everything that, that um, surrounds a holiday or, or a period in time. Definitely. Well, what, you know... 
when did we start running around and knocking on doors saying, trick or treat, give me some candy? What, where did that all come from? <laughs> well, it has, um, it does have kind of an ancient past and it's all, but it's also all tied into the Catholic Church too. Um, so when the Catholic Church is really doing its thing kind of in the medieval era, and we can talk even more specifically around um, 800, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, what they were doing is, is they moved into a new area, whether it be the Mediterranean or the British Isles, is they would rather cleverly take the local holidays and incorporate them into church holidays. So they were kind of Catholicizing the local pagan Pagan. Nobody wanted to celebrate a pagan holiday. I mean, that would be, you know... Exactly. Well, maybe (laughs) Contrary to what they were trying to do. But the Catholic (laughs) Church, right. Right. So so instead of banning those holidays, they reappropriated them, which is pretty smart. And Halloween became a combination of two holidays that were celebrated in Celtic tradition. Um, One was a spring festival where, um, for one day, it was believed that the souls of the dead walked the earth. And one of the day one of the ways to kind of avoid um, being seen by these souls and demons is to disguise yourself as one of them and it was also part of this tradition to leave food out for these wandering souls too so they wouldn't bother you right exactly leave, leave a little something out exactly and um that tr- that holiday was in the spring and originally the church declared all hallows day and all hallows eve today known as halloween in the spring to correspond with this holiday around 800 they shifted it to the fall to also incorporate harvest traditions you know traditional harvest festivals at the end of the summer. So in about 800 AD, the Pope said, okay, well now we're taking over harvest traditions and we're going to make it a day instead of celebrating. We're going to celebrate harvest. We're going to celebrate the dead, but you're actually going to pay tribute to saints right. instead. Actually, and, and that's that's very interesting because um, harvest festivals, the solstice, mm-hmm. uh, those are long, those were long held traditions in pagan times exactly and and it's it's interesting that because then the winter solstice became our christmas and exactly you know, halloween you know being up yeah became and still up. today there's so many kind of harvest symbols that are a part of halloween tradition it's not just you know ghosts and witches it's the corn stalks and the pumpkins and and bobbing for apples too these yes, kinds yes. of you know time of, of going to the fat time where we've harvested these crops so that's like the very 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 beginning all saints day was declared november 1st to kind of roll in all these holidays and then informally the day before became known as all hallows eve eventually halloween mm-hmm. um and on this day it became part of accepted church tradition for those who were less fortunate to go around and beg. And by about 1200, people were passing out things called soul cakes. And they were special cookies that were made with sometimes very expensive ingredients like saffron, sometimes spiced with other things or including fruit or nuts. And you would give these to poor people who were knocking on your door asking for food. And the thought was for every cookie you distributed, that was one soul released from purgatory. The Catholic Church does have all these great ways you like get out of jail free. (laughs) And in this case, soul cakes were one of them. Have you found any any old uh, references to recipes for soul cakes? Yes, I have. They they seem to appear a lot in people's handwritten journals. And Mm -hmm. although I haven't experimented with um, making those, I've made their descendants. They kind of, those soul cakes specifically involved in American tradition as something that was given out at funerals as a token of remembrance. And the kind of 19th century American version were usually spiced with coriander, caraway, and sometimes ginger. And they're these very kind of dry... Dry spice cookies. Very dry spice cookies. Almost like a fufferness, but not... Exactly. And they were often... 
imprinted with a design much like a spring roll cookie is in German tradition too. Mm -hmm. So Americans have always been big on cookies because we had the English, the Germans, and the Dutch all kind of coming into this one place. But, of course, meaning biscuit or not necessarily sweet, but, you know, as exactly. you said, kind of a dry, you know. Exactly. Even the word too. cookie is very American too. Right. It comes from the Dutch. The same thing would be called a biscuit or a cake back right. in England where, right. where a lot of early Americans came from. So we've made some of those later ones that, yeah, are kind of... Oh, some people are into them. They're good with tea. <laughs> so, but then it progressed from the poor being able to you know, give out alms to the poor. I mean, so then it progressed. So and... It progressed. So um, in America, we had a tradition called mumming that actually was more part of Thanksgiving tradition and part of Christmas tradition. And it was a time, you know, it evolved from this tradition of less fortunate asking for food or asking for alms um, to like any kind of teenager or kid or someone who wanted to be a little bit rowdy or maybe some Someone who was a little bit drunk, you'd kind of dress in rags or you would cross dress and you'd go around the street like singing and like pulling small pranks and then like knocking on people's door. And you, and the expectation was you re receive it sweet or like a little bit of punch or something like that. And if you were kind of good spirited, you'd invite people in and, you know, have a little party. And in return, they would recite a poem or sing a song or perform a little play, something like that. Mm -hmm. But if you were being a jerk and you didn't want these rowdy cross dressers in your <laughs> home and slam the door on them, then they had the kind of option to play a prank. So that tradition was more associated with Thanksgiving and Christmas, actually all the way until the 20th century. We don't see trick-or-treating really become a pastime until a post-World War II environment. Hmm. What happens in between is that Halloween becomes, um, becomes a popular holiday at the turn of the 20th century, late 19th century, when theme parties begin pop to get popular. And so Halloween, these kind of pagan traditions that were still, that were coming into America via Irish culture, Scottish culture, English culture, um, then got a more formal environment uh, in these kind of very grand Martha Stewart style, like come on over, celebrate Halloween. And again, we were still doing harvest festivals. Right. You know, well, and they would be celebrated primarily like in the civic centers, right? In, in, in even, large community centers. And in people's homes too. Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of instructions um, about how you can decorate your home with like a pumpkin chariot drawn by field mice or, you know, <laughs> how to like build a witch from like all those kinds of things in books from the turn of the century. So it became fashionable to, yeah, to have your church or civic center, but also to have people over and have this kind of party as well. So it started first as a party in the home too. Tying in with particularly in rural societies, harvest time was the time you got to hang out with people. And so the foods, right, the, the work was done, and the foods that would be served primarily would, as you said, the apples, the nuts, the pumpkins. The, you know. Harvest foods, right. exactly. And if we're talking middle of the 19th century or beginning, those are foods that take a lot of processing. So let's say we need to peel all the apples so we can boil it down for apple butter. Let's say we need to husk all this corn. We throw a party, and that means that everybody gets together, you make a game out of it. And I think more importantly, that means that people in their teens and 20s can meet, and that's when like pairs are made. There's all these kinds of flirtatious games, well, too. Tell me about some of the superstitions. There are some wonderful superstitions that surround the early Celebrations the of, early of celebrations Halloween. of Halloween. So one of them was like, let's say if it's if it's an apple party and you have to pair a million apples, you could um, throw over if you could. Well, first of all, it was important mm -hmm. to get the longest peel possible. It's a point of pride. And then you could throw the peel over your shoulder and allegedly it would land in the initials of the person you were going to marry. <laughs> Those kinds of more rural traditions got more formalized with these kind of Halloween spooky parties by the late 19th century, early 20th century. One of the things you're supposed to be able to do is take a candle to a mirror on Halloween night and then the, the visage, the image of the person you were going to marry would also appear in this 
in the mirror that you could see who that future person was. So there were these all kind of really love superstitions yeah. in these early Halloween traditions. It was all kind of in good fun. And I mean, everyone also loves a good scare, too. So That's right. <laughs> I think that like all the ghosts and goblins and things also got rolled in at that time just for that purpose. <laughs> well, well, I like that. I mean, it's interesting that there's all this, um, all of these little superstitious things to do to to presage a marriage yes. or, you know, or who it's, you know, the person. Clearly the most important thing. Yeah. At least and yet that, in the that, there was century. this freedom of dressing up and a lot of cross-dressing yes. going on. Yes. It gave everybody the freedom to sort of break down those, those gender roles. Yeah. And in terms of flirting too, like it's one of those holidays that we're like bobbing for apples. This is kind of very flirtatious game. You know, there's all these games where there's this chance of like touching each other or like stealing a kiss mm-hmm. or even like being a little bit vulgar. So, you know, in, I mean, I think the same thing applies today. We're given this excuse of dressing in a guise and that gives people a lot of freedom on this day one way or another. I mean, look at the proliferation of sexy quote unquote Halloween costumes. Right, right. I think it's often the same way, although you, wouldn't see a Victorian lady in, in a sexy maid outfit. You know, I think that the kind of pretext of this holiday was a night where it was acceptable for people to loosen up a little bit. Right. Well, um, as you say, a lot of these uh, celebrations were were community coming together, right. harvest celebrations, and then into the home. Um, and one thing that I was very interested in, because it was so much like um, a... A Christmas time king's cake mm. it was the the tradition of the Halloween the cake. cake. I've and I that was that's been sort of lost. We don't where yeah. do we find Halloween cakes? Tell us about the Halloween cake. Well, I found that reference in a book, um, which. We gotta love the internet in 2013. Oh, we yeah. can find so many <laughs> primary sources, and this one was on Wikipedia. The whole book is up there. It's called the Halloween Book, and it was published in the 19 teens. And it looks at the progression of Halloween tradition, and it's the kind of thing you have to kind of take with a grain of salt. Mm-hmm. However, it then goes on to describe contemporary Halloweens at the beginning of the 20th century. And one of the traditions she mentions is this Halloween cake, which, much like yeah, the cakes that I associate with, um, like the, the the 12 days of Christmas 12, yeah, yeah, the, and right. Epiphany and right. that sort of thing, um, where you make a cake and you bake into it different things. Like if you get a thimble, that means you're going to be a spinster. If you get a ring, that means you're going to be married quickly. If you get a penny, you're going to be rich, those kinds of things. Right. But again, this kind of obsession with finding the mate. And if you don't find the mate, I mean, it's like going to a fortune teller, you just eat a piece of cake. You just eat a piece of cake and everybody, well, not not the spinster doesn't win. The spinster then has to suffer the embarrassment of being the future spinster at 10 or whatever you're, they're getting this thimble, which is ridiculous. So I found that reference there, which at the moment is the only reference I found to it, but I would also trust it because she was describing a Halloween party contemporary to her own time. And did she say anything about the type of, of cake? That it was? No. I mean, yeah. usually those sorts of cakes would be kind of stuffed full of um, brandy and spices and mm-hmm. nuts, like almost like a fruit cake, Took probably. A dense, solid. Exactly. Cake. Well, we always, um, you know, you think about Halloween and Halloween today. Now, of course, then we, we've, you know, uh, transferred uh, the wonderful traditions just into this crazy marauding, yes. of, you know, taking how much candy can you possibly collect in one night. Yes. Right? And uh, kids went from having little jack-o'-lantern, plastic jack-o'-lantern heads to to <laughs> little Halloween bags to now using pillowcases. Yes. To we had all. a system. My mom would walk behind me, and I'd go to the door with the plastic jack-o'-lantern. Then when it got too heavy, I'd dump it into her <laughs> pillowcase. And I knew she was back there eating my candy when I wasn't looking, but I guess that's that's like payment. Yeah, she had to keep you honest. Right. Yeah. <laughs> she was being the pack mule to carry right. the candy. Yeah. So, Well, I found some 
a kind of alarming but also interesting figures. Yes, again, once on that trusty internet, <laughs> and to the tune that um, America spends it's it's the second the second holiday, second in in terms of of expenditures, six billion dollars on <laughs> Halloween, and yeah. I think that the average it says something about the average. Uh, one of the sources in the Library of Congress said the average American family spends seventy five dollars. Every Halloween. Wow. Yeah. You know, in some I mean, it's ways, gone up, obviously, in the last two years. But inflation. Yeah. Well, decorations, costumes, candy. Yeah. Yep. Right? I think it's kind of delightful in a it, way. Because we think about these cornerstones of American holidays. You know, Christmas, which also has all these religious tie-ins. Thanksgiving, which, too, had those used to have those religious tie-ins. Right. But is also kind of a purely American holiday. And I think Halloween, although it's not necessarily considered an American holiday, we were really the ones that celebrated it with the most vigor. And right. it's just now that the rest of the world, Europe, it, is it, trying to... You're right. It's interesting because um, uh, for a period of time, I was uh, I had the fortune to be um, in England every year around this time, mm-hmm. and yeah, of course, you know they had Halloween and mm-hmm, they celebrated, mm-hmm. but there wasn't all the all the um, we love it the decorations and the you we know the, and love it. Now you go back and you see there are pumpkins, there's costumes, there are decorations. It really changed, and I, you could see you really could see the transformation. Was I was in I was in Germany uh, about seven years ago, and when I was kind of in one of the, I was uh, there on Halloween, and someone mentioned it was the first time that they'd ever seen children trick or treat. Hmm. So it's it's more modern, even though the traditions come from Europe. Um, I kind of love it that we love Halloween because right. it is this holiday about pure fun. Like you, you're not going to church. You're like, there's no obligation to it. It's just this ho- holiday about like loving all things kind of on the dark side for one day, right. but going right. out and having fun, whether you're a child or an adult about it, allowing yourself to kind of like let loose and be someone else. I just, I love it as a holiday. So in a way I love that we are so invested in it as a country. And we kind of reclaimed it and brought it back into the pagan era again. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> right. Absolutely. And kind of thrown over and just give it up for the kids. I mean, yeah. it really is a, a wonderful kids holiday. It really is a wonderful, yeah. it's, it's it's a wonderful holiday where I think kids and adults get to have equal fun. Okay, Whether so what was your favorite costume ever all time? Oh my goodness, that that I have been have personally? You, oh, yeah. oh my. <laughs> I, I was lucky. I, I have a lot of like um, love for this season. My mother, fortunately, she was really good at sewing uh-huh. so early in september we would go to the fabric store and we'd sit with a simplicity pattern book and we flip through the book of halloween patterns and i would get to pick out what i was going to be for halloween wow. which is such like a pleasure and a joy and then she or if i had like a concept like i wanted to be my little pony she'd go and find the horse costume and then you know <laughs> tweak it so that i was in my little pony i think you know it's kind of funny i don't know if this is my favorite costume but i remember one year i looked through the whole pattern book and it decided I wanted to be a peanut M&M. And my mom... That's terrific. And my yeah. mom was what like, a great, I could see really? that top hat and the cane. And that. <laughs> She's like, are you sure? A peanut? And I was just like, yep, I want to be an M&M. And that's... <laughs> I don't know why that was the costume I wanted. But I just wanted to be that M&M, but I, I was. I was that peanut M&M for Christmas. Yeah, I dressed Halloween. my daughter as a pumpkin one year. I think she was mortified. But <laughs> but the one that I remember, uh, my favorite was not very exciting. It was a majorette or something. You know? mm-hmm. But... But I remember the costumes I made in the favorite mm. ones. And it's it was also a food theme costume. <laughs> I, funny, she was a, a package of McDonald's French fries. <laughs> <laughs> that's very I think I had an old foam mattress hanging around. Very I cut up funny. some big but the, the but it's a time to really unleash your creativity as well. Yeah. It's good with, you know, foods and then the foods food surrounding Halloween. Um 
you know, today it's mostly candy and it's right. manufactured candy. And of course, you mentioned the culture of fear that came about in the yeah. in the fifties. Whether it's urban myth or you know, you got you can't discount the fact that some bad things happen, a copycat or whatever. But yeah, so here's what happened. Uh, it's something that I kind of stumbled on while researching Halloween traditions because what I found out is that not a lot of people go trick or treating, which was a surprise to me because in the eighties, you know, that's what you did. And um, I discovered it. You know, there was this this real turning point that um, before the days of getting kind of pre-wrapped candy, it post-war, 1950s, early 1960s, you're often getting homemade treats, caramel apples and cookies. Caramel apples. Oh, I, I know. love it when someone would give us caramel I know. apples. No, you get that in your bag. <laughs> and even in the 50s, you, you were kind of expected to entertain the trick-or-treaters, like to have this kind of ongoing party where you kids could come in and have popcorn balls or punch, like in, you know, strangers' kids, but neighborhood kids. Um, and then in 1964, there was a woman who was living in New York. Alternately, sources have said Brooklyn and Long island it's a little unclear and she got fed up with kids that she felt were too old to be asking for candy at her door so to these older kids she was passing out um packets of steel wool and poisonous ant buttons okay we don't want to talk about that too much that's <laughs> oh, that's horrible but it, it did it did instill this and in, in know, her panic. kind right. of um in her kind of defense you know she wasn't she was passing out they were packages were labeled and she just her husband was kind of like she didn't think this through so she was trying to pull a prank on the pranksters and it kind of got run away with in the media right. and then there was this um in the kind of a little bit later in the same decade early 70s there was this kind of the razor blade and the, the apple razor blade, right and it's it, it is all kind of mythological although those things would actually happen once they were investigated it was usually shown that it was the kids kind of pranking their parents or right. things like that and then 1982 there was the tylenol tampering scandal right. so then not only did we have a fear of homemade things but we began to have a fear of things that you could even get into the store so in a way that was the beginning of the end of this um kind of post-war tradition of dressing up and going out into your neighborhood and the Just whole trick-or-treat thing, right. knocking on a door. Well, in the neighborhoods, yeah. we all used to know one another in neighborhoods, too. And that, exactly. And that kind of ceased. Right? But what's interesting is that there doesn't seem to be a lot of actual threat there, that there's a lot of fear, and there was a lot of kind of running away with it in the media. The media would report on the razor blades and the apple, but then they wouldn't report that eventually it was found to be fraudulent. So people have kind of started, yeah, throwing back to harvest traditions and to parties back home and inviting kids in as opposed to going out trick-or-treating, which I love a Halloween party, but at the same time, I wish, I, I mean, I loved, you know, adventuring the streets. Well, for the kids who live in those neighborhoods, it was what fun to just be able to free, to run around in the streets. Yes. You know, and just, it you know, was a sense yeah. of freedom as a kid. Your parents were there, yes, but you were outside, and I mean, like today, the weather's going to be beautiful yeah, tonight, yeah. the, the temperature's perfect, and what fun is that? Right. So I would love to see a revival in that tradition, because a lot of the kind of threat that ended... Um, you know, large scale trick or treating. A lot of it, a lot of it was myth that was right. born out of blown out of proportion. Well, we're going to talk about some more of the fun aspects, and that's mm-hmm. food when we come back after a short break. Culinary Center is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network.org. The ICC, with locations in New York and California, provide cutting edge education to future chefs, restaurateurs, and wine professionals. We're proud to claim Dan Barber, Bobby Flay, and David Chang among our honored alumni. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton from Chef Story. Check out our ICC website at internationalculinarycenter.com. Thank you. 
Hi, we're back on A Taste of the Past, talking all about Halloween with Sarah Lohman. And Sarah, we were talking about some of the wonderful um, food traditions yeah. in, in Halloween. And you mentioned caramel apples. Bobbing for, does anyone bob for apples anymore? I love I think that. This, you sent me so much fun. I think there's these like sanitary <laughs> concerns or yeah. something. I don't know. A lot, of, a lot of things we do in that regard are great, but uh, yeah. I bob for apples oh, when well. I was a kid. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and, um, Popcorn balls or yeah. caramel mm-hmm. corn balls. Those, mm-hmm. oh, delicious. And what would Halloween be without candy corn? Yeah, I feel like candy the much corn. maligned candy yeah. corn. <laughs> right. It's been called the most polarizing Halloween candy. And we, you know, buy tons of candy corn, but people buy it often without actually eating it or enjoying it. Use it as decoration. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, it's got the harvest colors, right. the yellow, the orange, the white, which in the beginning is why it began to be associated with Halloween, too. Well, it wasn't always called candy corn. Tell me a little bit about that, what you found out. It used to be called chicken feed, which I think is adorable. <laughs> yeah. um, it was first produced in the 1880s um, as chicken feed, and it was made year-round, as candy corn is today, and the industry is trying to capitalize on other holidays by making you know, they make it green. in Thanksgiving colors. And can yep. and Christmas colors yep, as yep, well, exactly in different flavors. But it was just you know supposed to be mock corn essentially, and it was popular on the Fourth of July as kind of a summer food. It was popular in Easter baskets; you'd throw it in there, you know, for the the marshmallow peeps to eat or whatever. <laughs> but candy at the time wasn't really associated at all with Halloween, which I think is hysterical. In fact, candy companies like the makers of candy corn were looking for an opportunity in the fall to boost their candy sales because break they just into the market to right? break into the market. And even though Halloween Halloween was already being celebrated by the 1880s as like a private home party. They invented a holiday the second Saturday in October called Candy Day as a way to get people to buy candy, which is, which which evolved into Sweetest Day, which is still celebrated in the Midwest. We celebrated oh, Sweetest, Sweetest Day, Day. Huh. Yeah, it's a day... Um, we always thought Hallmark made it up, but actually it was the like the Candy Company Association where you just like do something nice for your significant other. Um, but it was to sell candy, not thinking like it never occurred to anyone to do Halloween. We had we had apples for and cherries for Washington's birthday. Nobody thought to make Halloween candy until after World War II. But candy corn was one of the first candies to be associated with the holiday because it's got those beautiful fall colors. So when you'd go to a party, there'd usually be like a spread of snacks like the ones we talked about, but also things like apple cider donuts and, you know, nuts Mm -hmm. and fruits. And then usually a little bowl of candy corn, too, by the turn of the century. Yeah. So you're... Plug it probably around. When was it first commercially made? Do we know? 1880s is when it was first. And huh? and Brach's, 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 I don't know how you I say know, it. I'm never sure. Um, they were established in 1904. Mm-hmm. So and it comes from a larger tradition. Buttercream candies were a thing, and they were molded into all kinds of shapes, particularly little like um, pumpkins or chestnuts or right. things like that. I did bring a bag with me today. We do. So we we have celebrate. a bag right, right. here. Um, <laughs> Not homemade. They are they are store bought. But now I know that you ventured into. The, as I say, dipping your hand into it all the way. Yep. You tried your hand at making, making your candy own candy corns. Corn. Well, I, I um I have a friend of mine. I work a lot with the New York Historical Society. We have an ongoing um, class for families called At the Kids Table. We're doing a lot of sessions over the winter, and they're all about New York history and food and families working together to make something. So they asked if I would do something tonight. Tonight is their Halloween party from 5 to 7. Uh, you pay admission, and there's all kinds of activities for families. And uh, they wanted me to make something, you know, that was historic for Halloween. And I don't know. I mean, candy corn is so iconic. And so I was just curious I mean, somebody makes it, right? It had to be made by hand at some point. And one of the original appeals was the tricolor, that to get the tricolors, it all had to be kind of done by hand. So I started looking around, and of course, 
you know, goodness bless him, Alton Brown had a recipe <laughs> for um, candy corn from scratch. And it just like all his recipes are, it's excessively detailed and turns out perfect every time, which is why. Because it was probably getting to him, too. Like, how did how they does get he make three it? different colors? How did they get it And then, of right? course, as he does, he made it taste even better, I think, than the original. So, yeah, it's it's. It's fascinating to do. It's kind of fun and easy. It does require boiling some sugar, which is, of course, the part the adults do. And you mix in a little butter and some powdered milk to give it that kind of buttercream. Is that, yeah, I was going to say, is that what gives it that creamy? Because exactly. the best ones are the ones, first of all, that are fresh that haven't been sitting in the drugstore yeah. for three years, <laughs> yep, you know, yep. because it didn't sell last year. Yeah. Um, but when they are, you know, a fresh batch, they do have that creaminess to them. Not they just do. a sugar candy, but it is and a creaminess. And actually, I'm going to grab your bag because I'm okay. curious, like, what is in a bag of commercial candy? Oh, please don't tell us all those bad things. Because <laughs> <laughs> I assume that there's probably, all right, sugar corn syrup, confectioner's glaze, salt, dextrose, gelatin. Okay, so not vegetarian. Didn't know that. Mm. Sesame oil, artificial flavor, and honey and food coloring. So, there are, so it's not all that bad, not really. Bad, yeah, no. Just... The, when you make it from scratch, though, there's no gelatin involved. It's mm-hmm. just based on uh, boiled sugar to give it the proper consistency. Um, and you mix in the powdered sugar. You mix in the dairy, which isn't in the commercial one, but gives it that lovely kind of creamy texture. Mm-hmm. And then you add, you know, two different colors. You separate in three batches, add yellow, add orange, let it cool a little bit until you can work with it with your hands. And this is the part that's great for kids. You can, you roll it into snakes. You get three, you know, long snakes of each color and you press them together like Neapolitan style. And then you just form it into a wedge. So you have one long wedge shaped snake and then you slice it. Slice it into little triangles. Exactly. I mean, you know, it's, you've got to be precise on that. <laughs> uh, well, see, that's the thing. That's why I thought it'd be great for kids because I know that they're going to make a bigger mess than they will make a quality product. They will probably eat more than actually. End up going and how home many? With them. And how many get actually left to dry, or how right. many just go pop, pop in the in mouth? mouth. <laughs> but that doesn't matter. They'll have a great time, kind of playing and rolling and cutting and and working with their parents to make this thing. And I think that's the most. Fun. Oh, that's terrific. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope everyone enjoys a wonderful Halloween treat this year. And if yeah. you in New York City, stop by the New York Historical Society and you can watch Sarah making some candy corn. And you can come make it with me or <laughs> or make it, yeah, make it with And her, make right? it at home. It was really surprisingly easy, fun, and I have to say that the results tasted really, really good. And you can find that recipe and follow Sarah on her website, mm-hmm. on her blog called Four Pounds flower.com yeah well thank you so much sarah for joining me this has been a lot of fun it's fun to 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 just jump into something that everybody loves and halloween is something we all love yeah and thank you for listening to a taste of the past i'm your host linda palaccio Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.